I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast, serving up an appetizing platter of prose from this week's coverage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on the menu this week, Ethiopia's cunning pirates, how to use Twitter to study dialects, and Colombia's colorful future in ecotourism. But first, the German problem was our cover line this week. Germany may be admired for having an economy that is strong and stable, but its persistent trade surpluses are bad for others. The country saves too much and spends too little, as our cover leader argued. At bottom, a trade surplus is an excess of national saving over domestic investment. In Germany's case, this is not the result of a mercantilist government policy, as some foreigners complain. Nor, as German officials often insist, does it reflect the urgent need for an ageing society to save more. The country has a historic bind to this model. Underlying Germany's surplus is a decades-old accord between business and unions in favour of wage restraint to keep export industries competitive. And there is much to be admired in the system, as we noted. Harmony between firms and workers has been one of the main reasons for the economy's outperformance. Firms could invest, free from the worry that unions would hold them to ransom. Aber das ist nicht gut. The situation leaves the German economy and global trade dangerously unbalanced. For a large economy at full employment to run a current account surplus in excess of 8% of GDP puts unreasonable strain on the global trading system. To offset such surpluses and sustain enough aggregate demand to keep people in work, the rest of the world must borrow and spend with equal abandon. So can the problem be fixed? Of course, you can find out how in this week's issue. Turning now to our America section, where our Bayo columnist envisioned a colourful future for Colombia following a recently signed peace agreement. A country rich in flora and fauna hopes to swap war and terrorism for peace and ecotourism. Colombia is to birds what Ascot is to hats. The number and variety are extraordinary, and many are photogenic. It has over 1,900 different species, more than any other country. At least 270 are endemic or near-endemic. The Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta an isolated, snow-capped massif rising sheer out of the Caribbean, is a particularly rich aviary. Yet few foreigners have witnessed this vivid paradise. Until recently, Colombia, geographically challenging and historically conflict-ridden, received little international tourism. This has started to change in the past decade. In 2016, 1.9 million tourists visited double the number of 2005. And as tourism starts to trickle into the country, violence is hopefully seeping out. Last year, the FARC and the government of President Juan Manuel Santos signed a peace agreement. 
on June 27th, in a ceremony at Mercatus, not far from Vista Hermosa, the FARC marked the handover to UN monitors of their 7,132 personal weapons. If ecotourism booms, the country could receive a swift peace dividend. A study published last year that surveyed more than 5,000 members of the Audubon Society, the biggest bird conservation charity in the United States, found that many would be willing to pay more to visit Colombia than, for example, Costa Rica, an established destination for ecotourists. The author's conservative estimate was that bird tourism could generate revenue of $46 million a year and create at least 7,500 new jobs. Flipping through now to our Middle East and Africa section, a story explored the cunning creativity of Ethiopia's pirates. As an article explained, not even a sluggish internet can slow the bootleggers of Addis Ababa. Downloading a movie, legally or not, is prohibitively slow in Ethiopia, thanks to glacial internet speeds. Bootleg DVDs are everywhere, but even so it can be hard to find a reasonable quality version of the latest Hollywood blockbuster. Only one cinema in Addis Ababa, the capital, screens foreign hits. Yes, the pirates are not seafaring pirates. These imaginative pirates who spy an opportunity on the horizon troll the waters of, well, cyberspace. Last year, yellow ATM-styled kiosks began to spring up around Addis Ababa. The brainchild of three Ethiopian science graduates and their software company, Swift Media, the Chinese-built kiosks allow customers to transfer any of 6,000 pirated foreign movies or 500 music albums onto a USB stick they insert for as little as 10 cents per file. It may be piracy, but nobody seems too keen to crack down on it. The kiosks are located in large malls, in full view of authorities, who show no interest in shutting them down. This is just one manifestation of a general disregard for foreign intellectual property, or IP, rights in Ethiopia. But they have yet to start pirating tasting menu. So it's time now for a dollop of some other of our podcasts this week. In Money Talks, we peered into a world of virtual reality. Though there has been much hype about VR, there probably hasn't been much discernible difference for most consumers. Our writer, Leo Morani, explored the current and future landscapes of the technology and reported back. A big problem, actually, at the moment includes what the industry calls a chicken and egg problem, where there isn't enough content because there aren't enough people with headsets and not enough people are buying headsets because there isn't enough content. That is also starting to be solved, partly because the really big games developers, they take you know, more than a year to develop a good game. And that pipeline started a while back, and now some of the games are coming to fruition. So all of these things are being slowly solved. Now on to Babbage, our technology podcast. We looked at the evolution of one of nature's most striking technologies, whale teeth. The filter-feeding system of their teeth is known as baleen from which the whales get their name, baleen whales. But they evolved from a land-based creature with more conventional teeth. So how did this happen? And what does it mean for evolution? What does it mean about us? Science correspondent Matt Kaplan explains how a fossil has shed some new light on a very old question. The fact that the teeth, when they're brought together, form something of a filter suggests that the animal was filtering food out of the water. But just because the teeth can form a sieve doesn't mean that the animal actually used its teeth in that way. 
So when the researchers took a closer look, they wondered whether or not you would see wear patterns on the teeth that match with an animal that was chomping away at stuff, or whether they would see wear patterns on the teeth that were more anomalous. You can find out what the researchers discovered in this week's Babbage podcast or at the article online. For our final taste of this week's Economist coverage, we head back to the print issue and to our books and art section. Our language columnist Johnson, named after the archetypal dictionarist of Britain, Samuel Johnson, wrote this week about how the social media platform Twitter can do more than just spread vitriol. In fact, the vast amount of -of run-of-the-mill conversations is facilitating the study of global dialects. Those who think Twitter is only good for being rude about others are dead wrong. Yeah, in fact, they're complete nitwits. I mean, they're really dumb as a doornail. Sorry, sorry, just kidding. I'm trolling you. Millions of people use Twitter for ordinary chit-chat and unfiltered thoughts. Did that gentleman just speaking before me really say chit-chat? I'm sure he's either from the Midlands or North London. This may be no great contribution to world literature, but it is a gold mine for dialectologists. Why? Well, this is because social media users write as much as they speak. Dialectologists otherwise have a tough job. To find dialect words or expressions, they track down old people in the countryside, sit with them and patiently question them about their childhood, hoping to draw out distinctive local words and expressions. But it is time-consuming, allowing dialect researchers to interact with only a small number of speakers. But big data should now make this process a little easier. People writing on Twitter or Facebook leave an electronic data trail that can be gathered and analysed almost instantly. If people talk on Twitter, as they do in real life, all you need is access to lots of tweets. And already, linguistic patterns are emerging from across the world. Sofa is near universal in England and couch dominant in Scotland. Smaller words are naturally harder for dialectologists using traditional methods to find. But with Twitter data, researchers can easily find the rarer settee enough times to show that it is popular in South Wales and in bits of the north of England. Now, of course, there's a bit of a bias here because on Twitter you're limited by the character count, so there would be a natural preference for shorter words as well as ones that you can easily spell. But that's separate. Be it as it may, there are cultural lessons here to be learned, too. Maps for gosh in America show this minced oath to be popular not only in Mormon Utah, but in a contiguous region of the inland south from Texas to Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, Tennessee and Kentucky. But contrary to what one might expect, it hardly shows up in the deep Dixie states of Mississippi, Alabama and Georgia. Gosh! To dig into these nuances, pick up a copy of this week's issue to read more. But there's one take-home message for you before you do. Twitter can capture changes that would take traditional researchers, whether geographers or dialectologists, so much time that they might miss quick-moving developments. Morrow's researchers have a lot to look forward to. But for today, sadly, this is the end of this week's show, Tasting Menu. Any of the thoughts about this week's podcast or any of our journalism, send them through by email to radio at economist.com. And if you like our work, please consider subscribing. Go to subscription.economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.